Last week, as we started uh, uh, chapter 7, uh, we see how the, the, in the Word of God, Jesus encounters um, these friends of a Roman centurion, uh, these representatives of a uh, Roman centurion, a soldier uh, who had some, you know, some rank and authority in the Roman army, uh, and they asked uh, these, these people to go to Jesus and ask Jesus to heal his servant, right? His, his friend, or the companion of his, his, his servant. And I, I love what the, um, uh, the, the elders said uh, to, um, to Jesus on why they should heal the centurion's servant is because he was a good guy, because he built a synagogue for them, and he's just a great guy. You know, do this, do this for him. He's a good guy. He just, he deserves this. And so when Jesus goes back to heal the servant, um, uh, some more friends of the centurion meet him and basically say, "You do not have to come to my house. I'm unworthy for you to come to my home. I know how authority works. You, from where you are, can just say it, and he will be healed." And Jesus, as if you remember, Jesus was absolutely marveled, taken back by the faith, as the text actually says, the faith of this centurion. He was, Jesus was marveled, shocked, unexpected, uh, unexpectedly by the faith of this, uh, this centurion. And Jesus granted his request, not because he was a good guy, not because he built synagogues, but that he had faith, and Jesus granted his request. This passage this morning goes along with our, our passage uh, from last week, and there's a purpose behind it, and we're going to see the, the culmination of this purpose, I believe, next week in uh, the story that we'll encounter from um, some friends from John the Baptist. Uh, we'll, we'll, see some, uh, we'll, we'll encounter that particular situation uh, uh, next week, and we'll see uh, deeply more what these particular purposes are. But here we have John the Baptist, last, next week, he, John the Baptist is in prison, and he questions Jesus, right? Essentially, he kind of questions Jesus. Are you really the Messiah? Because some of the things that I was preaching, I'm not really seeing, and we'll, we'll talk more about that um, uh, next week. But here's the overall purpose in, in these, pappas, pa- uh, these passages in showing not only John the Baptist and his messengers and showing us that he truly is the Messiah. That he truly is the Messiah. And as we heard last week and as we've heard throughout, the, throughout our, our conversation through Luke is that so that we would have certainty in his authority as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And so, as we saw the unexpected faith of the centurion, this week we'll see some unexpected power take place. Life is filled with unexpected moments, isn't it? One, I mean, one day to the next, we, what, we, what we think sometimes we can plan can easily be foiled by the smallest of things. I remember growing up, we were on our way to this huge live singing Christmas tree thing. You know, some big church in Merritt Island was doing it. And it was like this gargantuan 50-foot Christmas tree with all these people like as ornaments. It was weird. But they sang. It was the choir of the church, and they sang from this living Christmas tree. That's not the point of the story. Anyways, we were, we were getting ready to go, and my parents, they actually just bought a brand new Suburban. I mean, it was a, not even like a week old. And we get in the car. My mom was doing something else that night. My grandparents go with us. And so my dad, my grandparents, and my, my brother and I, and my sister, and we're in this brand new Suburban. Christmas is going. You know, lights are everywhere. Christmas lights! And about, about 10 minutes into the journey, we're all expecting to go see this living Christmas tree. 10 minutes into the journey, my sister throws up all over this Suburban. She baptizes it in, in, in whatever it was, right? And so we had to turn back and, and deal with that, and unexpectedly, our journey completely stopped. We still went. My grandparents actually took us. They, they drove us, but my dad had to stay back and fumigate the Suburban. Um, our, our lives unexpectedly changed. Also, this week, 
um, uh, Kate started crawling up the stairs for us. And, and, you know, just like a week earlier, not even, I mean, we're talking like within minutes, it was like a light switch. One time she was terrified. I mean, just utterly terrified at the sight of, of getting her legs up on a step and try to climb herself up. So now she's just right up. So our lives have unexpectedly changed uh, again now to accommodate this one-year-old to keep her from somersaulting down the stairs. I mean, we've already had one do that, and we don't need another, right? So expect the unexpected is the wise saying for preparing for certain things in life and different things in life. But there are some things in life that we cannot expect. That's why we call them unexpected, unexpected moments. And we can't expect those things in, in its entirety because we're not omniscient. We can't see everything. We don't know everything. We're, we're right here, right now. I don't even know if someone's joyriding my van. I mean, if they are, hey, more power to them. Right? They could have picked better. I don't know. Right? We're very limited, we're very, we're very finite, and, and sometimes those unexpected moments in life, they, they don't make us laugh. I guarantee my dad was not laughing when my sister uh, baptized our brand new Suburban. Sometimes those moments don't make us laugh. Sometimes those moments aren't as easily uh, shaken off or cleaned up with a shop vac and shampoo. Sometimes those moments come in, in a form of an unexpected phone call or text message. A call that can change your life, and an unexpected diagnosis, or an unexpected death of a friend or a loved one. Life is full of the unexpected, good and bad. And in our passage this morning, we see Jesus in his crew come rolling up into this small town and they are met unexpectedly to a funeral. And, and not just a regular funeral, but a funeral that had, that had devastating consequences to the family. A, a young man who had died and a, a mother who is now being left alone as a widow. Life is filled with the unexpected guarantee you that when this woman got married, when this woman had her children, her child, she wasn't expecting that day. She wasn't expecting having the funeral of her son after the funeral of her husband. And it's in the midst of this story, this unexpected deep grief, Jesus comes up on this unexpected funeral is where Jesus steps in. It's where Jesus steps in to their unexpected pain and their hurt, and we see Jesus showing unexpected compassion and power. Let's look together. Luke chapter 7, and read together, starting in verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who who had died was being carried out. And the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And when he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother, for fear seized them all. And and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people And the report of him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. Praise the Lord for the inerrant, inspired word of God. And may it speak into our hearts this morning as the Holy Spirit works in us. So soon afterward, the healing of the centurion's servant, 
Jesus and his boys, they left Capernaum and they were headed south. 25 miles south from Capernaum was the small town of Nain. And as they came to the city gates, as we said earlier, they were taken back. It says, the text actually says, behold. Behold. They were taken back by, by this funeral procession of carrying this body outside of town, which is what they would do. They would carry their dead outside of town where they would bury them. And we get a few, we get very little details uh, uh, for the sake of the story of, of, of who the young man is and why he died. And, and, and those details just don't matter. That's why Luke doesn't include them. The Holy Spirit doesn't give those things to us because it just doesn't matter. But what we do know is that he was a, a young man. He was young and he was the only son to his mother. Right? And one more detail about his mother. His mother was now a widow. So she had... Her husband had passed on, and her son had already, has just died. These are the details that we have. And here's why it is important that we know that this woman is a, is, is a widow. Because now she is in dire straits. This woman now is in dire straits. Not only suffering the, the painful grief of the loss of her only husband along, right after the, the loss of her husband at some point, but now she was a childless widow in a society that no longer, or there was no longer anyone that would provide for her needs in her old age. Because it was customary for the children to provide for their parents, for their, for their family. And this is the same sense. She was just as bad off as Naomi was, as we read this morning. Her social security died with her son, and what's so ironically tragic here is that the whole town that has gathered with her, this large crowd with her to mourn with her in this funeral, this was a community thing. People felt that the death of this young man, as any small town would, with that kind of tragic loss. But what's tragically ironic is that large, cra that large crowd was, was in contrast to her actual lonely state. Because tomorrow she would wake up and be alone. Tomorrow she would be still brokenhearted. She would still need to face the day, not just to survive her grief, but to face the day to survive life. She would still have to try to find what she was going to eat and how she was, what she was going to eat the next day and drink. She still had to do life. But Jesus was moved with compassion, and we're going to speak about that in just a few moments, and that should not surprise us, that Jesus responds and is, and is moved with compassion. His heart went out for her, and yet Jesus just doesn't express his sadness and his sympathy in, in, in ways that only we can do at funerals. But even when faced with death, the Savior can help. As we already seen time and time again throughout Luke, and what we'll continue to see is, is Jesus doing the works of miracles. Doing things that, that no one else can do. And then he acts in ways and speaks in ways with authority that no one else has. He speaks as under his, uh, by his own authority. And in this text, in this story, we see Jesus raising the dead as well as we see in other places where there's two other occurrences where Jesus raises the dead, Jairus' daughter and also Lazarus. I'm going to read Jer the story of Jairus' daughter at the, end of the, at the end of the service. So from our passage this morning, I have, I have three things that I want you to see about this unexpected power of Jesus and how he is showing the fulfillment, once again, of his mission as the Messiah. These things that are good for us to see and good for us to delight in this morning. And they're very simple. They're very simple things. First thing is I want you to see how Jesus knows our plight. Jesus knows our plight. P-L-I-G-H-T. Number two, Jesus raises the dead. And number three, Jesus has come. So our first point this morning that I want us to encounter is that Jesus knows our plight. 
meaning out of every human being that has ever been born and has ever existed, the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, He alone knows the depths and the level and the helplessness of our spiritual condition and all His creatures. He is unique in His humanity and in His deity to be able to feel and experience and see the exact level and depth of our need. He knows our plight. Let me explain. On some levels, we as Christians, we understand our depravity. We understand our our, our sinfulness. We, under, we understand the, the levels and the depths in which our hearts and our minds will go after idols and after sin and temptation and desire things more than God. We, we know where we, can, where we can go. And we are also increasing in the knowledge of, of our depravity, which leads us into trusting in Christ more, the sufficiency of our Savior, asking forgiveness and knowing that His grace is sufficient to forgive us. Praise the Lord. But I don't think that we really truly ever see how really deep it goes. We see, we see levels at a time. We see certain levels at a time. I don't think there's a grace in, in, in that. We see certain levels at a time. It's like, it's like exploring the depths of the ocean. Right? We can only go so far. But Jesus knows the depths of the ocean because he's been there because he's created it. We can know how far it goes, but we don't really know for sure. So in this, this passage and in other passages, we see how the Bible reveals to us and shows us, yeah, we are fallen in our, in our nature and we're helpless and we're need. Ephesians 2 is a good one to turn to, that we're dead in our trespasses and sin and it's the Holy Spirit that reveals to us and shows us our, our need for Christ and the, the restorative work of the gospel in our lives. But my point here is that Jesus is uniquely the one who knows how deep and how far our fallenness and our helplessness really goes. Not just as far as we are capable to sin and how far our rebellion against God can go, but just like in the song, Joy to the World, He knows how far the effects, the curse, go. So when Jesus comes into Nain and He sees this funeral... He sees this funeral and he, he sees the situation and he sees this grieving mother and this town grieving over the loss of this, of this young man. You must wonder to ourselves how the things that he must be thinking, not just how tragic of the loss of this young man to this woman, he certainly feels that, but he also sees how tragic and unnecessary all death was because he understands our plight. He was there in the garden that day when man fell and when God cursed man to death. He knows how devastating the consequences of sin are. Even when we are committing them, He knows. He knows how far they go. And He knows where it's going to lead Him. We can experience these same kind of emotions of, of compassion like he did on some levels as we are talking about when we see needless tragedies and accidents. And I think these are one of those communicable attributes that the Lord has given to human beings for us to be able to feel compassion and mercy for other, other, other people. Just for example, this past Monday, um, as I got up, made my coffee, and I was watching the news, I saw two stories that came on TV that on the news that just moved me. It just moved me. And two students from Georgia Southern died in a car accident on Sunday night, coming back from Thanksgiving, unexpected. Two brothers, actually. In an instant, their father, who they said was a former football player at Georgia Southern, lost his two sons. Like that. And then right after that, from another car accident, this time involving a firefighter from South Carolina, he left his wife, his four-year-old son, and his unborn child 
unexpected that moved my heart, that moved my soul. Because death is the consequence of the sin. It's a consequence of the curse. It's a consequence of the, of the fall. And I believe that Jesus, in this passage, and as we see in other passages, he feels the effects of this in a unique way that only he can feel. And we see him feel it in his humanity, don't we? We see him feel it in his humanity where he is moved with compassion toward the, toward the widow. When he saw her, he was moved with, this, with compassion. And this word compassion means that it is something that he feels from his gut, from his heart, from his lungs, from his stomach. And he can feel it right here, this pain that is deep inside that longs to make things right. As we all do when we see these things. And Jesus' response, we see it the same way. Again, when, when Lazarus died in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, Lazarus died. And when Jesus sees Mary and Martha weeping over the loss of Lazarus. It says in, in, in verse 33, it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Later on, with the shortest text of the Bible, Jesus wept. He was moved with compassion. And he wasn't weeping for the dead man. He wasn't weeping for Lazarus. But he was weeping along with those who have lost. And he's weeping because he sees the effects of sin the heartbreaking effects of sin. Knowing the plight of our lives. He knows deeper than anyone else. He knows the seriousness of sin. And every pain that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has a part. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So how does he respond with compassion? Not only does he feel, but he also speaks. And what we'll see in a moment is he acts. He speaks with compassion. He speaks with compassion. So just a quick note, how unexpected, right, that's kind of the, the key word here, unexpected, that this mother who is on her worst day can turn out to be the most miraculous day. Unexpected. But God. Look what it says in verse 13 of what Jesus says. Kind of crazy. Do not weep. I'm, I'm not that great at funerals. I'm, I'm really not. Um, and and, and I'm, I have my own issues at funerals. I'm, I'm thankful for God's grace and his mercy um, and his uh, humor and make, you know, calling me to be a pastor. Yet This is something that I, I deal with. Um, uh, but even as awkward as I feel sometimes at funerals, and I really have to cling to the gospel at funerals because I can easily become a person who thinks life is just meaningless at funerals. Uh, and, and yet, uh, the Lord is very kind. Um, so as awkward as I feel sometimes at, at funerals, I know that one of the rules when you go to a funeral is to do your best to try not to say anything stupid to the family. Right? Just don't say anything, you know, don't say anything uh, dumb. I, I bet Bill could give us some, some whoppers, you know, people, what, what people have... Have, have said uh, around families, you know, just kind of the things you're just like almost embarrassed uh, uh, for them. Um, and, and it seems that what Jesus is saying to this woman could, could kind of be the worst thing, right? I mean, who goes to a funeral and looks at people crying and comes up to the family and says, don't weep? Get your chin up. Don't be a baby. Don't weep. But what we see what Jesus is saying here is I think he's being genuine in his care, but he was also hinting at what's about to happen. 
He's hinting at, at, at what's uh, about to, to, to happen. And, and, and so just like for us Christians, when we experience suffering and grief and death, and, and we feel like as if there's no hope, but we see the gospel speaks back to us and tells us that we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. Yeah, we weep. We can weep, and we should weep with those who are weeping. But we weep with the hope and knowing of the coming miracle. That this is not it. That this life is, is, is not it. This is not the end. And in our death, death is not really dying because Jesus paid the penalty of sin and death and crushed death. So still speaking words of compassion today when we suffer when we face tragedy and loss in our own lives, when we still face the reality of sin and the curse and death, do not weep. And yet we still see Jesus feel empathy and, and compassion and loss. And he speaks these compassionate words, these compassionate words that, that come to us as, as light, as pierces of light in the dark night of the soul. But that's not all he does. He acts. He acts, which brings me to my second point. Jesus raises the dead. So not only does Jesus know our plight, and he speaks with compassion, but Jesus then raises the dead. Jesus raises the dead. Look at me with verse 14. It says, Then he came up, and he touched the buyer, and, he's, and the bears stood still and said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. There's so much in that verse right there. There's so much in that verse right there. And we have to remember that this was a real story. This really took place. This is the truth of the word of God. And this guy was really dead. We, we, we must not think that it was only metaphors and just metaphors and speaking to something else and therefore the guy wasn't really dead or didn't really happen. Well, we must not believe the thought that, that first century people really couldn't tell if a person was dead. That's stupid. People know who, when someone's dead or not. After a while, it becomes pretty clear. But what does Jesus do first? He touches the coffin. He touches the coffin. Now, you might remember back when we talked about the, when Jesus healed um, the leper, that it was unlawful for Jesus or for any Jew to touch something that was unclean, and certainly a dead body is something that is unclean, and if a body is sitting in a coffin, you best not touch the coffin. And so Jesus, knowing that this could make him ceremonial unclean, and according to Rome, or, uh, Numbers 19, he would have to undergo the, the rigorous process of ritual cleansing, but Jesus, again, shows us the requirement of the law is mercy above sacrifice, life over ceremony. And when he touched this coffin, everybody was kind of shocked. I think they just stopped. That's why it says the bears stopped. Who is this guy, and why would he do that? Why would he put his hand on the coffin? It stopped everything. I think it stopped the processional. It stopped those professional mourners. I don't know if you know about that, but they hire these professional mourners to, to weep really loud and exorbitantly to let everybody know that there is, there is a death here, or there's loss here, and everything just kind of stops. And in that moment, it's just as if life and death, it's as if life and death just kind of come face to face. And just kind of stare at one another. And this is where we get that living parable once again. This, these living metaphors and parables of, of Jesus' mission. 
Jesus' purpose to give and bring life where there is death. And that's why I say this is not it. That death in this life is not really dying. This is the bigger picture. This is the the bigger picture that this miraculous work of raising the dead is, is pointing to. But look what he does next. Even crazier. He doesn't talk to the mother again. He doesn't talk to the pallbearers. He speaks to who? The dead guy. So the silence is broken when Jesus looks at the the dead guy in the coffin and says, Arise. Get up. Get up out of your coffin. The audacity of Jesus. The audacity of, of Jesus, right? And, and how shocked they must be uh, and until something actually happens. There's something unique about this. And, and many of the other miracles that we've seen Jesus do and act, he, sometimes he accompanied it with an action, like he would, he would do something, like he would touch them, or he would uh, do something, make something, spit on something sometimes, and he would mix stuff up, and he would do stuff like, like that, but not here. Here, in, in the other resurrections, he is very precise in how he does this. He speaks. He speaks the word and the authority and with the power that only God can speak with. And he acts and he does with a power in a way that only God can do. And that is to bring life and give life. To raise the dead. This is only what God can do. And for any of us, for us to come to life, to come to life, we need the sufficiency of the Word of God preached to our souls. And the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit makes us alive. This young man's condition, this condition of his life, heading out the gates to the cemetery is all of our spiritual conditions. Unless the powerful word of God speaks to command life into once what was dead and to to get up out of our coffins. I find it also just a real quick side note that Jesus spoke to a dead body. And when he spoke to that dead body, that dead body heard. Somewhere, somehow, in some place, that young man was alive. And he heard the power of the Word of God and came to life. For death even now is just death of our bodies and our spirits live on. That's just a side note, just a quick observation from that passage I just found was remarkable. He touches the coffin, he speaks to the dead, and Jesus raises the dead. He raises the dead. We see that in verse 15, that he, the dead man sat up. He sat up and he began to talk. Now wouldn't it be amazing to kind of know what he said? Like, what would you say? Thank you first, maybe, right? But... But afterwards, what well, I mean, what would he say? I don't know. This is speculation, right? And Jesus, I guess it sounds like that he kind of helps him out. And he gives him to his mom. The voice of God was heard by the young man, and he obeyed. What once was cold, dead, lifeless, pale in the face, but now alive is up and talking. Jesus has more authority or has authority over death. Jesus has authority over death. The the dead man didn't just simply move or or twitch. Didn't just simply move, but he sat up and he spoke as if nothing ever happened. We all know that there's certain illusions and tricks, you know, that magicians can pull off in some way or another. 
But this is something that no one can do. No one has ever tried that. In fact, I had a friend tell me a story one time that while he was home uh, during one of the vacations in, in, in college and spring break or whatever, um, he was curious and he went to, in his town, one of those um, healings and miracle prosperity gospel wacko places. And he went to one of these, you know, this big name guy was coming into town and they had the whole hoopla, everything you could think of was going on. And then at the end of the service, the culmination is now God can heal you or whatever you got. And all these people lined up and, you know, I can't walk and I'm in my wheelchair. And so they would, you know, pick them up and then throw them on the ground. And, you know, and then the person who couldn't speak or hear who has cancer, you know, they're all being miraculously healed. And my friend said something that he noticed something, though, at the end of the line, there was this guy who, who moved up to the end of the line and he was holding this bag. Holding this paper sack. It gets to the finally, you know, these they're, you know, people are screaming and barking like dogs, and they're doing all the things that they do. People are being healed. He gets to this guy, and I don't he didn't he said he sounded like he didn't know this guy. And he said, Sir, what can I heal you of? What can I do? And he says, I'm fine. So what do you need? What can I help you with? And he said, In this bag is my daughter what I have left of my daughter. I want you to bring her back to life. And so he, he did, you know, he was stunned. He didn't know what to do, but he did what he thought he could do and he was doing all the little hoopla's and jumping up and down and praying that he would have faith and that guy would have faith and what happened? That guy went home with his paper sack. He said they eventually just shut all the lights off. And they grabbed the guy and they removed him. No one can do what Jesus can do. No one can do what Jesus can do. Only God can give life. And this is a picture of our resurrection, isn't it? A picture of our new life in Christ, but also a picture of our, of our future resurrection in Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. It says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven, and with a cry, right? So with His word, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up with Him in the clouds to meet Him in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And here's our encouragement, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You see, as the dead were once dead, they will eventually be made alive. Not just our, in our, our new life now, in our abundant life now, in this, this new body now, or this new creation now, but one day we will all rise by the power of the Word of God and be resurrected, and be made new, and given new bodies to reign with Christ. So the same voice that raises this young man from the coffin will be trumpeted from every uh, corner of this earth where every atom and every cell that once was alive will now become alive. They will hear its voice and will obey. All will hear and see Christ. And everyone who has trusted in Christ that has already gone before us, and maybe even ourselves if Christ tarries, we will rise. And death itself will not be able to hold us as it was not able to even hold Jesus himself. His victory has become our victory. So whoever it is that we know, John, Sally, child, Jesse, Catherine, whatever it is, when it's resurrection morning, we will awake. That though we suffer now, that though the great pains that we may face, and though death may be staring us in the face, or we see those who are staring death in the face, there is a future resurrection that will come. And this death now is only temporary. Because Jesus raises the dead. 
That brings me to my third point. Jesus has come. Simple. Jesus has come. It seems like, um, it seems like everywhere, it seems like everywhere we look now, there's like superheroes everywhere, right? I mean, there's like 17 movies a year that come out about a Superman. It's Batman. They fight each other. They become friends, and then they both want Wonder Woman or whatever it is. Um, I haven't seen it yet. Um, Spider-Man, all of this. We're, we're just like going after these things. Everyone seems to be looking for a hero, a superhero. And I think, there's, I think this kind of just taps into a little bit of the reality of life here. Um, one thing is, is we have very few heroes left. And everybody we always consider to be a hero seems to be being vilified. That's not for here nor there. Um, and so this need for a hero just kind of taps into this reality, taps into this, this, this reality that there's something very broken about us and that we all need some kind of rescuing in our life, whatever that may be. It may be sin, it may be death, it may be sickness, it may be health, it may be my grades, it may be whatever it may be in life. My job, my family, my relationships are broken. I need something to rescue me and pull me out. And so we, we long for this hero-like character that would come and rescue us and sweep us off our feet like as if we are all Lois Lane. That's Superman's girlfriend. And we see this kind of taking place in this story as well because death is horrible. Death is horrible. And the reason why it's horrible is because it's something that should have never happened. It isn't, it isn't right. We're not meant to experience death. This past week I saw a a great YouTube video of how this very gifted uh, t- uh, and, and talented photographer um, uh, took took some time of of meeting uh, uh, some some children who had disabilities or uh, learning disabilities or diseases or maybe even uh, cancer or they were handicapped in some way and and he would uh, he dressed them up in really good costumes that fit them as superheroes. Whoever they wanted to be, they would, they would make these costumes and then he would put them in front of a green screen and take their picture and, and even, you know, make them look like they're flying, you know, the fan blowing the cape and, and sometimes they would put Batman and Superman together like that they're fighting and it was an awesome video. I mean, just so in neat to see kids that are smiling and wanting to pretend and be these, uh, to be these superheroes and then at the end, they all got in the mail, these big so- movie poster size pictures of them as this superhero in their own, in their own uh, uh, movie. And, and I really love that video, but when I started thinking about that video, it got me back to that idea is that we're all looking for a hero. We're all looking to, to fix what is not only messed up in ourselves, but messed up in this, in this world and, and what's messed up about death. But then what we do is, is we look to ourselves to fix the problem. It's like building the Tower of Babel over and over and over again, never to reach what we want to reach. And yet this passage, the response of these people from Nain, show us. They show us. They show us what we are, what we are looking for. Look at verse 16. It says, fear sees them all. Like that, fear. Fear sees them. They, they were overcome by the presence of God. They were overcome by the, by the presence of God. They weren't They weren't rejoicing, they weren't smiling, they weren't singing, they were in fear of the presence of God. It is a fearful thing to be in the presence of God and His holiness and His power. Fear sees them all, and they glorified God. I love that. When the fear of God comes upon us, we glorify God. We glorify God. And look what they say. A great prophet has risen among us. And certainly, yes, a great prophet has arisen among them. But Jesus was more than a prophet. Mo, uh, uh, Moses actually uh, pre- predicted or prophesied or, or taught of a 
excuse me, a greater prophet that would come. In a long succession of prophets, there would be one prophet to rule them all. That would be greater than all. In Deuteronomy 18, he says that. He points to this. There is an idea of this great prophet to come. You know what's also amazing about this story? This story is very reminiscent to good Jews who know the Old Testament. In 1 Kings, there's a story of Elijah healing a widow's only son. And it's almost, it's eerily similar to to this story here. I mean, it's amazing how similar it is. But there's one great difference. Elijah called upon God three times to heal the son. Jesus spoke it. Jesus spoke it. And he was was healed. But look what also they say. Excuse me. A great prophet has risen among us. And God has visited his people. And God has visited his people. So they're definitely tapping into this idea of the Old Testament here. Because throughout the, the Old Testament, there's, some, there's really deep roots of, of time after time where the, where the prophets foretold of where God himself would visit his people. They were, they were tapped into this prophecy and this idea that God himself would come. And this is exactly what Luke is showing us from chapter 1 even all the way to now. Especially when we can look back to chapter 1 when Zechariah himself, right? John the Baptist's dad says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. So, Coupled with this idea of, of, this, of, of, this, of, of healing this young man, we certainly know that God has come. And he has come in his son, Jesus Christ. And this is the Savior, the Redeemer of Israel, who will bring salvation and deliver us from sin and death. We're, we're, we're now in the, the grips. Like I feel like we're, the, the vice grips are just kind of tightening up on us with Christmas. We're now in the, in the, in the grips of, of, of Christmas. And this Advent season is what we call the time that leads up to Christmas, right? So Christmas is a one-day deal, right? But Advent is the time that leads up to, Jesus, uh, leads up to this, this celebration of the coming of Jesus at, at Christmas, so Christmas comes and it, and it goes, but unfortunately I think what it finds most of us is unprepared. It finds us unprepared spiritually. Sure, we may have all the presents bought and we may have them all wrapped and the meals made and all the decorations up and all the light bulbs working correctly. We've got all our clothes ready to go and our candles ready to go and all these things. We have all those things, but we do very little to prepare ourselves spiritually. And you see, this passage this morning not only teaches us so much about suffering and trusting in Christ and the resurrection that we will eventually see, but we also see how it prepares us. How it prepares us for Christmas. Because Christmas is about a Savior. The the coming of, of, of a Savior. It points us to the fact that we need a Savior. That's what Christmas says. Christmas points us to the fact that we, we need a Savior. And the scripture, including this passage, shows us that our Savior is Jesus Christ and that He is the only one that could raise the dead. He has come. And that's what Christmas is all about. Emmanuel, God with us. He has has come. And you see, Christmas without a Savior is actually an indictment of our lostness. It's an indictment of our lostness and our death. And before Christmas can become a delight and a joy to us, we must recognize that we need a Savior. Not ourselves. Not trying to find our own superhero or be our own superhero. But Jesus. But Him alone. But Him alone. 
continually understanding our need for a Savior. Taking our eyes off of ourselves and our hearts off of, off of ourselves and these material things during this season. And He is one who does not disappoint. We can be encouraged. We can be encouraged this morning that if we are walking through suffering or that the suffering we may face one day, that this life is not it. That everything is going to Him. Everything is pointing toward Him. That, that we exercise faith despite pain and grief and tears and we glorify God in the midst of all of that because his intended purposes of our suffering, our intended purposes of our life, our intended purposes of our salvation is his glory. I'll close with this in John chapter 11, back to Lazarus. I don't know if you know the story, but Jesus, or the particulars of the story, but Jesus actually avoids going to to heal Lazarus for a few days for an intended purpose, for him to die. He needed Lazarus to die first because it was God's sovereign plan for him to die so that the Son of God would walk up that day, see everybody weeping and crying, and cry out, Lazarus, come forth, and God would reap all the glory. Christ would be exalted. And so this morning we can trust in him that he will bear our burdens because he knows our plight. He raises the dead. And we can rejoice because Jesus has come and that one day he will come again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for such a glorious and wonderful Savior who knows our plight, who speaks compassionate words, knowing the depths of our need and has come to meet that need, who met that need by laying himself down willingly as a sacrifice for our sins. And I pray, Father, now that as we respond, that we would, that our faith would grow and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.